This is a conspiracy channel. Welcome to the Hush Channel. The Appalachian Mountains are old, having existed before any recognizable life by today's standards. They oversee the life of today and serve as a magnet for more stranger things. There are caves unexplored that run beneath these mountains and into its rolling hills and the plains that extend from them. These caves stretch out far and wide. You may think you are safe from the haunts the mountains welcome. And all the while, you are living right atop its underground network. John Bell Sr. was born on December 19th of 1750 in Edgecombe County, North Carolina, now a part of Halifax County. He was the son of William Bell, a thrifty farmer and prominent citizen who provided a good country school education for his son, John. In turn, John Bell Sr.'s early years were marked by apprenticeship as a barrel maker. He became a lad known for his handsomeness, his hard work, and persistence, marking him early on to becoming a practical and successful man. Transitioning to a career in farming, John's life took a significant turn at the age of 32 in 1982 when he encountered a 12-year-old named Lucy Williams, also from Edgecombe County and daughter of John Williams, a man of considerable wealth of prominence in the county. Lucy was beautiful, smart, and all the things young women were expected to be during the times. Her father approved of a marriage to John Bell Sr. and gifted her an enslaved young woman named Chloe alongside Chloe's son, Dean. John Bell Sr. and Lucy established their home on the farm Bell had acquired where they indulged in the labor of the land and were devoted to the Baptist faith as they reared their six children. In addition to the family of eight, including John and Lucy, Chloe, their enslaved black woman, had eight children. So the farm in total housed 17. More space was in demand. Over the next 20 years, the Bell family thrived as John became one of the most prosperous planters in the region. All went well until the 1801 crop season when their crops failed. Coming back from this was hard but doable until the situation repeated itself only three years later in 1804. And the festering pattern was the deciding factor in John's decision to move his family and enslaved blacks westward and start over as several of their friends had done. Such migrations, specifically during this time, were the onset to what is now called the Westward Expansion, which lasted approximately 60 years, from 1801 to 1861, as people left the established 13 colonies and ventured west. This would only heighten in 1803, when President Thomas Jefferson's acquisition of the Louisiana Purchase, which nearly doubled the size of the nation by negotiating the price of $15 million to purchase 828,800 square miles from France, including the lands that would become all or part of the 14 current states of Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, parts of Minnesota, New Mexico, Montana, Wyoming, and parts of Colorado. In addition, this treaty also ceded the territory that is now a part of the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, Canada, which became a part of Canada through the Convention of 1818, when Britain and the United States established at the 49th parallel of latitude would separate Canada and its southern neighbor from the Lake of the Woods, westward to the Rocky Mountains. 
Mountains. This is how Canada's current day borders were formed. The winter of 1804 to 1805 witnessed the Bell family and those enslaved by them a journey over the perilous mountains of North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. Good lands and farming was the objective of those like John Bell Sr. who ventured west and only young men of muscle, nerve, honesty of purpose, and a courageous disposition to work, possessed of self-reliance and frugal habits, were amongst such a lot. In selecting homes, good land, plenty of water and timber were most sought after. Consequently, the leveled barren lands were neglected, and the better settlements formed along the rivers and the creeks. And this accounts for the high character and noble citizenship on Red River and Elk Fork Creek in Robertson County, Tennessee. John made his stake up almost 1,000 acres of some of the best land along the Red River where it featured a beautiful young orchid of which he would further improve with multiple homes, barns, and a large fertile farm as he cleared out even more land for he and his family. This was done especially with the aid of Dean, the son of Chloe, the black man enslaved to the Bell family. Dean had mastered the big wagon and team in the train from the Old North State. This is what landed the family safely in Tennessee. He was noted as being the best axeman and rail splitter that ever entered the forest of that old country. Small in stature but powerfully muscled, it was said there were no two men ever found who could match him in chopping timber. John Bell thought a great deal about Dean and treated him kindly, as he was said to treat all of those enslaved to him. Amongst the 1,000 acres was also a cave, named today the Bell's Witch Cave, after the family's namesake, and also an old graveyard for the indigenous which had been there long before the Bells or any other European arrived on that land, just 300 yards north of the Bell House itself. The resident itself was a double log house, one and a half stories high, a wide passage or hallway between, and an L room or wing that is built at a right angle to the length of the main portion of the house. Their L room had a passage and the house itself was weather bordered on the outside and had six large comfortable rooms, two halls, and stood as one of the best residences in the county at the time. Located on a slightly elevated plain nearly a half mile back from the Red River itself with a large orchid in its rear and a lawn of well set pear trees. Browns Ford and Springfield Road ran right through the estate within 100 yards of the house. In the present times, the extent of the Bell Estate resides in an area near where Adams Station is located as it is today located in Adams, Tennessee. Alongside the Bell family were others who had became pillars of the Red River community, like that of Reverends James and Thomas Gunn, who would become the pioneers of Methodism, and Reverend Shook Ford, who was a pioneer Baptist minister and a man of great influence. In the community, John was well respected. He was the type that did not believe in owing any man. He paid for it in cash. He did not believe in shortcuts. Input equaled output. He worked hard. He lived according to the good book and instilled the same values into his household. He was a stern man, yet fair, honest, and it did not hurt that he was physically striking. Meanwhile, everybody loved Lucy. She was a vibrant, beautiful woman and exhibited all the characteristics of being the perfect mother and wife. It was Lucy, after all, who was able to make even a serious man like John melt to her smile alone. The two, in conjunction with their children, seemed to have blessings upon blessings poured upon them. And like back in his hometown of Edgecombe County, North Carolina, in Red River, John had became one of the wealthiest and most influential men in the settlement, known and respected for his character, devotion to Christ, and generous hospitality. Many social gatherings were held at the Bell family home. Guests were always welcomed and treated and boarded appropriately and without fee on any given day. Neighbors 
always checked in on the family and vice versa. And their kids were friends with the other kids of the community. Life was good. The year was 1817. By this time, the Bell family had expanded from six children to nine, as John and Lucy had birthed three more children since their migration from North Carolina. Seven sons and two daughters. There was Jesse Egbert Bell, 27. Benjamin Bell, who had died while still a child. Drury Bell, 25. John Bell Jr., also 25. Esther Bell, 17. Zadok Bell II, 14. Elizabeth Bell, who was 11 or 12. Richard Williams Bell, 6. And then Joel Egbert Bell, 4. That July 24th, their oldest daughter, Esther, would be the first of the brood to marry. And the lucky groom was Alexander Bennett Porter, the older brother of her little sister's best friend, Rebecca Porter. The marriage was officiated by a family friend, Reverend Thomas Gunn. Jesse Bell would months later marry Reverend Gunn's daughter, Martha Lee Gunn. Ironically, their little brother, Richard Williams Bell, who was only six at the time, would later in life marry Reverend Gunn's other daughter, Sally Gunn. As for the two wedded Bell siblings, Esther and Jesse would move off the Bell family estate into the Red River community to begin their new lives. With Esther gone, Elizabeth Betsy Bell was now the only girl amongst boys and was the apple of her parents' eyes as such, their princess. Described as being an all-outdoorsy, nature-loving girl who was lighthearted, a romping lass whose roguish beauty and mischievous glance made the hearts of the boys go pit-pat. It did not help that she had matured fast physically. She was blonde, symmetrical in form, presenting a charming figure of uncommon grace with a fine suit of soft, silky hair, which hung in beautiful waves that contrasted her fair complexion and large deeply set blue eyes. Even Betsy's school teacher, Professor Richard Dick Powell, 10 years her senior, doted on her and used every opportunity to serve compliments about her to her mother Lucy. Betsy was all in all known for being sharp-witted with a great sense of humor, properly educated and popular as she became the doll of the Red River community, well-loved and received. A young and handsome Joshua Gardner set his sights on Betsy around this time. He had came from a good family and all things considered, Joshua checked all the boxes a good father would check for in his daughter's suitor. Joshua himself reminded John Sr. of himself as a youth and everybody in the community agreed that the two had a more than well-suited courtship. Betsy felt just as strongly about Joshua as he did her. Their relationship became teenage couple goals, idolized by her peers and even their parents as they wanted their children to also find a courtship of such ideal as the two youngins had. Where other guys have been scared to approach Betsy and would gain proximity to her by way of befriending her brothers and visiting the Bell family home under the guise of being the boy's guest, Joshua Gardner made his intentions known and stood on business. The two could not get enough of each other and often excused themselves from the company of others for privacy. But as Betsy was possibly finding love, there was something else that had found her and her family. On one of these nature walks with Joshua, something called out to the two. Please, Betsy Bell, don't have Joshua Gardner. Please, Betsy Bell, don't marry Joshua Gardner. Please, Betsy Bell. Don't have Joshua Gardner. Please, Betsy Bell, do not marry Joshua Gardner. Everybody in the community murmured about the voice as to them there was no better parent than Joshua and Betsy. And these days, your first love, your school, sweetheart, often became your husband. And so for this voice to sow dissension amongst the two made absolutely no sense. The neighbors could not wait 
to hear of Joshua's proposal to Betsy one day and see them joined as one, creating their own family. It was troubling for the two lovers as well, but it weighed the heaviest on Betsy. Joshua was stern and persevering in his love for Betsy, and nobody and nothing could or would stop him from being with her, but her. However, Betsy was thinking about what this voice could be for a warning of. Joshua was perfect. Did it know something about him that she didn't? Or perhaps know something about the future him that they both did not know? Something that would come to fruition and prove disastrous not only for herself, but her children, her future family? If she did not heed to the voice's words, she was more precautious because of this. Especially as she be the woman of the house, the one to birth, raise, and nurture their future kids. All of this went into mind. Versus Joshua, who of course loved Betsy as much as one could. But he was not thinking about the future in that sort of sense. Despite knowing that he would one day get down on one knee and ask for her hand in marriage and then create a family with her. The two thought of the future both similarly and very differently in terms of the voice's warnings at the same time. One day John was walking through his cornfield when he saw what he could only guess was a dog. But still the closer he walked the more he noticed it was unlike any animal he had ever set his sights on. It peered at him as he approached. John with gun in hand shot at it but the dog or whatever it was ran off. Days later, his son Drury Bell saw a large fowl that he assumed to be a wild turkey sitting on the fence. He ran into the house and grabbed a gun to kill it. But as he got within shooting distance, the bird flapped his wings and sealed off in a manner that definitely let him know that that was not any wild turkey at all, but instead some unknown bird of great size. Not much later one evening, Betsy went walking outside with the other kids amongst the big forest trees near the house and saw what she described as a pretty little girl dressed in green, swinging on a limb of a tall oak. Then there was Dean, who was enslaved to the bells, who reported that same black dog in the road in front of him every night when he visited his wife Kate, of whom was enslaved to a neighbor named Alex Gunn. The dog would trot ahead of him to Kate's cabin and then just disappear. And every now and again, a ghostly rabbit would appear in the road diverging the Bell estate. Said to, unlike other rabbits, normal rabbits, possess a black spot on the bottom of its left hind foot. To this day, nobody in the area will eat such a rabbit with that market. Instead, instead they carefully cut off the foot with the black spot and place it in their hip pockets, burying the body on the north side of an old log. Still, with the occurrences named, nobody thought anything about it. But things began to go up a notch. When the specter began literally knocking at the Bell family home doors and walls, then it began to knock inside the house. First in the room that the boys slept in, they would see what appeared to be rats gnawing at their bedposts. Then dogs fighting, alongside a noise of chains dragging across the floor. But as soon as a candle was lit, the noises and images would disperse. But immediately afterwards, screams would be heard coming from Betsy's room as if something was on her or after her. They would find her frightened out of her mind, completely shaken. Even after she was finally able to stop herself from screaming, the times would shortly follow when John Bell Sr. would become afflicted with the stiffness of the tongue. He described it as feeling as though a small stick of wood were crosswise in his mouth, pushing out both cheeks. And when he would attempt to eat during these episodes, he would be unable to swallow as the food would be pushed from his mouth first. Thus, he would be unable to eat at all during such a time. These episodes occurred for a while, and he asked that his family keep it a secret. And they did. But after a year, 
John Sr. had had enough of suffering in silence, and there came a time when it became so unbearable he reached out in confidence for the aid of family friends James Johnson and his wife, asking them to spend the night to see if the strange occurrences would cease with company or if there could possibly be further elaboration as to the cause to the disturbance that they could possibly think of. The Johnsons were more than willing to aid the Bells, and that same night they were at the Bell family home. That night, Mr. Johnson led the family in prayer and worship, reading the chapter, singing a hymn, then offering prayer. This was Mr. Johnson's daily practice in his own home. He prayed very earnestly and fervently for a revelation. After congregating in prayer, everybody were tied to their rooms and beds, cutting the lights in the home off. And almost immediately, as the Johnsons themselves laid still in their beds, there came the emergence of odd sounds growing increasingly. This caused them to look around in the darkness. And of course, they couldn't see anything as the room was unilluminated. But they knew they could feel that something had specifically entered their room. Just as they were peering around trying to get a grasp on what could be going on, the covers were stripped from atop of them. Mr. Johnson shot straight up frantically, but he still refused to let something of Satan cause some unrest, so he began to talk to the specter, commanding it to reveal itself and tell its purpose. After this incident, Mr. Johnson insisted that John tell their other friends of the matter for further investigation, and John agreed. I suppose they believed that the more people that knew, the more scarce the ghost would become. But this was not the case. More and more people came by, and the specter was not shy at all. In fact, the more people that came by, the more rapidly her demonstrations developed. People would come by to question her, and she would have answers. She would know all of the local gossip, and would tell it without shame to anybody who was there and could hear. The witch would even travel back to John Sr.'s hometown of North Carolina and bring back gossip to the house. And the gossip was never incorrect, so it only furthered the notion that the specter was real. She was not confined to one place and would be any and everywhere, listening, prying into people's domestic affairs, divining the inmost secrets of all those people's hearts, taunting people with their sins and shortcomings, laughing at their folly. She was a busy witch, a witch that held fast to Christianity, however, especially of the Methodist variation. Her gossiping had the townspeople shook. They were on their best behavior, very careful not to covet that which was not theirs, nor to allow their right hand to do anything the left would be ashamed of, out of knowing the witch would expose it to the world, and they would be forced to tuck their tails between their legs out of shame, as people began coming from far and wide to visit the witch at the Bell Estate those days. Even President Andrew Jackson himself had to witness her in person. John Sr. would host all these guests daily for free of charge and give all of them five-star treatment. And thus, things were at peace outside of the specter being a fixture in the Red River Society. Citizens did not think to lock their smokehouses or doors, nor stay up guarding their hen roofs and watermelon patches. The wickedest men would not even think to curse or else be tossed about in the air by the witch within the hour. She was well versed in biblical verses, song, and prayer. And as such, she would imitate Mr. Johnson verbatim and in his exact voice. She was particularly fond of him and called him a model of Christianity, naming him Old Sugar Mouth. She'd utter things like, Lord Jesus, how sweet old sugar mouth praise. How I love to hear him. She attended his prayer meetings and chanted the amens, thumps on the cheers, and scrimped out, Lord Jesus! 
The rebuttal to this were the local churches citing that even Satan himself was once a respected angel who became too presumptuous and fell from his high state. The witch would listen in on such preachings. One instance involved Reverend James Gunn and Reverend Shug, whose congregations were located 13 miles apart. Sermons that were held on the same day in the same hour. One sermons were that of Calvinism mixed with Arminianism, which is a movement of Protestantism based on the theological ideas of the Dutch Reformed theologian Jacobus Arminus and his supporters. The remonstrants in the Netherlands in efforts to moderate the doctrines of Calvinism. The other reverend sermons were a mix of Methodism and Baptism. The witch recited both of their sermons, but the mixture was even too much for her. And this is where she fell from grace. She began to mix company with purely evil spirits and would host a carnival of demons at Betsy's Bow, John Gardner's house. The witch was seemingly drunk and would curse and fume, making the house smell like bad liquor breath. She spat on the enslaved blacks, turned over chairs, stripped covers from their beds, pinched and slapped the children, and teased and taunted Betsy at every given chance in any way she could possibly imagine and manage, invading her dreams, rearranging her rooms drastically in the night, pulling her hair. The chaos never ended. It got to the point where Lucy and John Sr. were scared for Betsy to be left alone at night in her room and called for Betsy's best friends, Deanie Thorne and Rebecca Porter, to both stay the night with Betsy or take turns doing so. The witch, or so they called her, was wild and without care towards any and everybody except Lucy Bell, of whom she called Old Lucy. Declaring Lucy to be a good woman and would even sing hymns to her and gift her fresh fruit. The specter even favored John Bell Jr. a bit. But oh, did the witch hate John Sr., of whom she called Old Jack. She absolutely loathed John Sr. and declared that she would not leave the Bell family estate until she had rid the earth of him. an actual Kate Batts that lived in Red River, known for her eccentric and dominating character. She and her husband, Frederick Batts, had three children, Jack, Calvin, and Mary. All three would eventually die before their time. The boys were described as being unpopular in society and not attractive at all, being spindling, gawky, and droll in appearance. Mrs. Batts was a larger woman of about over 200 pounds. She was headstrong and her tongue was definitely not put on backwards. No man wanted to find them themselves on her bad side or else she would read them for filth not caring where they were at or who was around to hear it the bats family were well off owned a very good farm a number of enslaved black people and always had money to lend there was not anything really disreputable about them except for kate's eccentric ways kate would mix company with girls of her son's age in order to find a suitor for her son calvin the young woman did not like to see her coming of course as kate would only try to hook them up with her son by an array of very lengthy and what she perceived as highly articulated words as she mixed in improper jokes. The girls simply could not wait for Kate to be gone. They did not want Calvin at all and nobody could convince them otherwise. The same was true of the high society of women in Red River of whom Mrs. Bass believed she belonged amongst but they simply would not accept her. This gave Kate the notion that somebody was always trying to slight her or best her and that she deserved their respect and praises and why not she had just as much as them good land respectable husband she was well articulated why would they not accept her high society however frowned on her they would be all smiles to her face but laugh behind her back 
and even gossip horrible things. Sister Kate was deemed an enthusiastic Christian, one of the types of people who would cite scripture at people at every given opportunity, who would show up and show out for all to see her caught up in the spirit in church. She was loud, boisterous, and proud about her faith. She was a proud member of the Red River Church and a regular attendant, although she was always late. She would make sure to become the center of attention before leaving by her antics. The woman was always putting on a show and did not seem to notice its side effects. On one occasion, Reverend Thomas Phelps was conducting a revival meeting which had been in progress for several days by then. The house was crowded, people were anxious, and just as Parson Gills concluded a fiery sermon calling all sinners to repentance and mourners to the front as rapturous praises were sung in Kim Kate Batts and her show. She got caught up in the spirit, filling up on glory, and rushed to the church house on her horse, Old Gray, buttoning in the house on bare feet at the pinnacle of worship. At the time, everybody's focus was on Joe Edwards, who was down on all fours at the mourner's bench. Joe Edwards was known to be a good citizen, but he was still considered wicked because he was still yet a sinner who had not given his life to Christ. So everybody was surprised and happy to see him at the pulpit, especially his religious friends, who thought the day would never have came. Just at that moment, Sister Bats rushed in, elbowing her way into the circle, deliberately spreading her copper skirt all over Joe Edwards and sat down atop him. The poor man had no type of idea what was going on and he felt that he was actually fighting with Satan himself and that the devil was atop him. He shouted and yelled, Another man tried to have Sister Bat sit elsewhere, but she declined in an elaboration of big words stating, No, thank you. This is consoling to my disposition and I feel amply corrugated. The deacon then tried to basically tell her that she was squishing the life out of the man in a polite manner, of course, by telling her she was crowding the mourner. To which she replied, Oh, that don't disturb my perspicuity. I am a very plain woman and I do love to congregate near the altar with the Lord and making congregation amongst the sinners. Said the deacon. Yes, bless Jesus. Let him suffocate. He's getting closer to the Lord. Exclaimed Sister Betts. The church then quieted at her response. But then everyone bursted into pure laughter because Kate was being so ridiculous and all being done to make her seem more than what she was. Sister Bats then felt as if the foundation below her was given out and was caught by two of the churchmen just in time to stop her from making even more of a fool of herself. Just as this happened, Joe Edwards shot up joyously feeling as if he'd been delivered from some unknown spirit that had snatched him from the vast abyss as he felt the weight be pushed up off of him. Sister Bats clasped her hands and shouted, Bless the Lord, bless my soul, Jesus is so good to devolve and poor critters in the consternation of Satan's mighty disparity. The situation had gotten so comical that people were spilling to the outside of the church just to let out howling laughs because they simply could not hold back any longer. This caused the early conclusion of the meeting. Then there came a time when it was said that Reverend James Gunn conversed with the specter at the Bell Estate, trying to gain more insight on it. The specter told Reverend Gunn that it could not tell him a lie given that he was a preacher and told the Reverend that it was a witch and that it belonged to Kate Batts and was determined to haunt and torment old Jack Bell for as long as he was alive. This new information coupled with the fact that it was said that Mrs. Kate Batts 
absolutely hated John Bell Sr. and how he and his family were so fortunate and well-loved unlike her and hers when they had every right to be considered equals in the eyes of society. This made people believe the Spectre was actually telling the truth. People took this information and spread it far and wide like a wildfire. And the Spectre at the Bell Estate now had a name, Kate the Witch. This name stuck and still is sticking. Mrs. Betts herself, upon hearing this news, was beyond unhappy with the rumors floating about and tried endlessly to get to the bottom of who exactly had spread the lie about a conversation that Reverend Gunn had with the Spectre. But she could never find any answer. The rumor had taken on a life of its own and until this day the Bell Witch is called Kate the Witch because of such gossip. And it did not help that high society had already dubbed Mrs. Betts a witch given her imposing character and that she had an odd habit of asking every woman in town she ran into for a brass pin. Something that super superstitiously grants the beggar power over the donor. Women in town became quick to put their pens far away when Mrs. Bats came into sight because of so. So to the people of Red River, the allegations added up. Upon further research, some interesting information has been found connecting the Bats and the Bell family. It is something that is not spoken of when the Bell witch story is told and Kate Bats, the person, not the specter, is mentioned. So Kate Bats is actually the niece of Lucy Bell. There are three Bats brothers that resided in Edge Cove County, which is where both John and Lucy Williams Bell hailed from, Jeremiah Batts, Frederick Batts, and Benjamin Batts. Lucy's sister was Elizabeth Williams, of whom she presumably named her daughter Elizabeth Betsy Bell after. Lucy's sister Elizabeth married Jeremiah Batts. Lucy and Elizabeth also had a brother, John Williams Jr. John Williams Jr.'s daughter was Mary Catherine Williams, also known as Kate who upon marrying Frederick Batts became Mary Catherine Batts, also known as Mrs. Kate Batts. In marrying Frederick Batts, Mrs. Kate Batts was not only Lucy and John Bell Sr.'s niece, but also their sister-in-law. What is even less spoken of in the Bell Witch story is the other Batts brother, Benjamin. Benjamin Batts played a role in getting John Bell Sr. excommunicated from the Red River Baptist Church over the dispute of the seal of an enslaved black woman. This information comes from bellwitch.org. Excommunication is the action of officially excluding somebody from participation in the sacraments and services of the Christian church. Anything deemed to be in violation of the holy law or that would cause embarrassment to the church could result in excommunication and it was a common act amongst earlier churches. Because the early settlers were so devout in their religious convictions, excommunication was considered to be the worst thing that could happen other than death. And the associated shame would follow the person unto death. And we all know that John Sr. was a devout man of the Baptist faith, and he instilled this into his family as well. The situation that occurred took place on July 19, 1816, when, according to the church meeting minutes, the following happened Brother Bell informed the church that there was a report in circulation that he had taken unlawful interest from money lent to Benjamin Batts. This report is what Brother Bell says as falls, and as such that he never lent Mr. Batts a cent of money or received a cent of interest from him at all. Brother Bell was then called on to inform the church what he supposed gave rise to said report, to which Bell told them that sometime about the 1st of June past, he purchased a 
Negro slave girl from Bats, for which he gave Bats $100 for, but did not gain possession of the Negro girl for several days afterwards. Bats insisted that the Negro was worth more and insisted to have liberty to sell her again. At last, Brother Bell told Bats that if he sold the Negro girl, that Bats must pay him $150. Bell then had the Negro in possession and a bill of sale for her. Some days afterwards, Mr. Bats and a Mr. Bogan went to Bell's house and gave Bell $150. Bell counted out only $120 but said that it was fine and he was satisfied with that. He then gave up the Negro girl and burnt the bill of sale. The verdict for the meeting was postponed until the next day and the record for July 20th of 1816 states, The church with the brethren who were present unanimously justified Brother Bell and what he did agreeable to the evidence that came to them. Meaning they agreed that what Bell had done was fair. Unsatisfied with the church's action, Bats took up the matter in a court of law where in the fall of 1817, John Bell was tried and convicted of usury, the charging of excessive interest. Being that he was an elder of the church, the news of Bell's conviction spread quickly throughout the Red River community, Port Royal, Springfield, and Driggs Pond. Bell's actions embarrassed the church so they charged him with the same offense a second time. Because of the negative publicity given the church as a result of his being convicted in a court of law, the church decided to reconsider Bell's usury case, i.e. charge him with the same offense a second time. The following was recorded in the church's minutes of the November 15th 1817 church meeting. On motion agreed to reconsider the case of Brother Bell as decided in July 1816. On motion agreed to sit Brother Bell as decided aside for a hearing on the matter of taking usury. He has been found guilty by the jury in the circuit court for the county of Robertson. As such, we think the cause of religion or the religious cause suffers in his hands. So basically, Bell being convicted in a secular court of law brought shame and embarrassment to the church. So they decided that they needed to rid themselves of Bell to untarnish their name and try to make it look and sound good by saying that his conviction makes them weary of him being affiliated with their church and Christianity altogether. Bell is then found guilty and excommunicated from the church. At the meeting that occurred on January of 1818 of the Red River Baptist Church, John Bell's religious fate was decided based on the charges of covetousness and contempt that were formerly brought against him at another meeting the prior month. The charge of covetousness carried one specification, that being Bell's having been found guilty of usury in a court of law. The charge of contempt carried three specifications, the first of which was Bell's allegedly saying that the church had received a member who did not walk according to the apostolic order. The second specification of contempt stemmed from Bell's allegedly having said harsh contemptuous words against the church. And the third specification stemmed from Bell's allegedly having threatened to withdraw his membership from the church. It is interesting to note that the second and third specifications of the contempt charge seemingly came out of nowhere between November 1817 and January of 1818. After reviewing John Bell's case, the church made the following decisions as recorded in the church's minutes for January 13th of 1818, stating the following. Brother Bell was found guilty of the first charge but gave satisfaction for the second charge and the specifications. 
The question was taken where the bail's acknowledgments for the first charge were satisfactory. Answer, no. Whereupon that vote was taken and he then said John Bell was excommunicated from our fellowship, end quote. On a lighter and somewhat humorous note, Benjamin Bax himself was excommunicated from the church several years later in March of 1825 for stealing bacon. From this However, it can be theorized that John Sr. did not have an issue of Kate Bats at all, and that is just typical patriarchal villainization of a woman and her strong personality, which contrasted the times, so much so that they deemed her a harbinger of spirits who sent out a specter to haunt the Bell family. The witch word was definitely thrown around lightly back then. So it is possible that the only dispute John Sr. had with the Bats family had to do with Benjamin Bats, who was the brother of Kate's husband. This is only one theory, however. And also, it does bring to mind why did the church not excommunicate John on the charge of covetousness alone and found it necessary to find additional charges for which no prior hearing was even held. As stated on the site bellwitch.org, it makes you wonder if there was some other reason Bell's fellow church elders wanted him gone that was left unwritten in the church's official records, such as the notoriety that had been gained because of the specters that taunted Bell's home, or possibly the rumors that the whole Bell Witch fiasco was a ploy to gain attention by those of the Bell family themselves despite contradicting information on that. But people during these times were easier to rouse up and to herd like sheep with gossip when it came to attempting to make something supernatural practical. And maybe the church did not want any smoke with the specter. They tried and tried and then failed and failed to exercise the estate, but have been unsuccessful each time. And instead of blaming themselves for the failure, of course they wouldn't do that. They looked to point everywhere else for the reason their attempts were unsuccessful. And with the initial dispute between Bats and Bell, it would be obvious that they were against him if they were to rule in Bats' favor initially. So even given that opportunity, they could not make that specific play. It looks like they were looking for a reason all along to even get rid of John Bell Sr., to be honest. Excommunication was a very serious thing as stated before, so John Bell Sr. petitioned the Red River Baptist Church for reinstatement several times over. On October 16th of 1819, a committee composed of the leadership of several area churches reviewed the matter and recommended Bell's reinstatement. Unfortunately, however, the Red River Baptist Church would still have to agree with the committee's report. On February 19th of 1820, the church decided to formally review the committee's report and they still refused to reinstate Bell's membership, even though all of the other churches got together and did this thing. John relentlessly tried to clear his name with the church and never gave up. But the Bell witch did not leave empty promises. For the witch was said to have poisoned him and he died that December 19th of 1820 at the age of 70 years old the words fixed him i did it he will not get up were heard upon the family finding john senior's dead body the witch stopped attacking the bell family upon his death but made sure to disrupt his funeral service by singing inappropriate drinking songs the lone entry for december in the red river church minutes solemnly read no conference in december john bell senior became the first person in history to be documented as having supernatural causes as his cause of death. 
asked for Betsy Bell, the witch, succeeded in breaking her and Joshua Gardner apart. Four years after her father's death, Betsy and her sibling's childhood school teacher, Professor Richard Powell, 10 years her senior, married on March 21st of 1824. And once their mother, Lucy Bell, passed away, the estate was no longer kept up with and now remains as mere rubble. This concludes this tape.